Friends, we're starting a new worship this morning. It's called Keep the Change. Keep the Change is all about the practice of giving and the changes that living in generosity can evoke. Generosity is a powerful force for change and integral to our faith. So this is a stewardship series. You may have no doubt, but it isn't a moment when we step away from our normal faith practices, when we break away from our regular programming for a fundraising drive. As we will see, generosity is at the core of who we are as people of faith. And specifically, over the next three weeks, we'll be considering how giving can change us, how giving can change our communities, and how giving can change the world around us. We'll begin this with the individual effects, the transformative effect that generosity can have on us as the giver. Let us begin in prayer. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father and of the can be hard to talk about money. Earlier this summer, Jennifer and I took our infant son camping for the first time. We knew from the outset that it would be to camp with a baby, so we simplified everything that we could, beginning with the day when we arrived at our campsite. Just setting up the tent and unloading our gear from the car was accomplishment enough, we decided. So we planned to not cook for ourselves, but order a pizza from a local restaurant, because there was a local pizza place just down the road from the campsite. It was supposed to make things easier. So we went to this local pizzeria, but when we went to order, the server behind the counter said we couldn't order. They were out of everything, apparently. And I'm still not sure how that's possible, but it's been an unusual year, and stranger things happened. So we couldn't order a pizza from there, And it threw our carefully laid plans for a loop, and so we sat in the parking lot growing increasingly hungry as we searched for a pizza place that we could find within a reasonable de- driving distance, and there was one. One just a little distance away, and we learned from our mistake, and we called ahead, and we placed the order. And they had an automated recording on the phone line that read out their deals for the day, including that with the pizza we had already planned, right size, the right number of toppings, we could get a free order. And fortuitous, almost like it would make up for the longer drive and the unexpected complication of the pizza-less pizzeria. And so when the automated voice was done and I talked to a real person there at the counter, I ordered the pizza, confirmed that it would come with a free order of breadsticks, and they said that it would, and they had the ingredients to cook, and everything was good, and so we placed the order, and we drove out. And when we got there, Jennifer waited in the car with the baby while I went inside. I paid at the counter, and I got our pizza, but the breadsticks hadn't come out of the oven just yet, so I stood off the side to wait. And there, off to the side, waiting for the breadsticks to come out of the kitchen, is when I noticed on the receipt that they charged me $7 for our free breadsticks. So that wasn't right. So when the breadsticks came out of the kitchen, good and hot, and they handed them to me, do you know? I took my receipt, and I took my pizza, and I took our not-free breadsticks, and I walked right out of the store saying, nobody to... Nobody. 
and out of the car. I tried to grumble to Jennifer about it, but she gave me this look. And so I tried to get defensive, and I asked her, what did you expect me to do? Only to learn that this was not a rhetorical question, as I thought it was, and there was, in fact, a right answer, and I should have politely asked the cashier about the charge for the breadsticks because I thought they were supposed to be free. But it can be hard to talk about money, and so I avoided it. And I would like to report that the breadsticks were incredible and worth every penny of the $7 that they cost, but I am sorry to say that they were not, and that free was the much more reasonable price. The rest of the camping trip, by the way, went smoothly, and we had a wonderful time. But I know I am not the only one who would avoid dealing and talking about money like this. Earlier this year, I saw a story shared on social media about someone's eight-year-old daughter who had set up a lemonade stand in their front yard. She'd set up the lemonade stand, and in less than an hour, she made $110, which is exceptionally profitable for a lemonade stand, and raised a few questions. And so her parents watched, and it turned were handing her $5 and $10 bills for their lemonade, and she was simply assertively thanking them for the tip and not offering any change. And so she made $110. And of course, anyone could have asked for change. Oh, but it can be hard to talk about money, and so we avoid it. We don't want to ask for money, and we hardly want to be asked for money. There is this cultural taboo around plain conversation about money, a learned inclination to separate money from everything else, to deal with finances as this intensely personal and private matter. For even as much of our lives is related to or dependent on money, we'd rather treat it as entirely divorced from everything else. Even when talking about it would like when studies show that talking plainly about our salaries with our coworkers can help eradicate unfair wage differences based on gender or race or age, well, we still stay quiet about our money. It is, for so many of us, an unfortunate but unavoidable aspect of life that we would like to be handled quickly and quietly before returning to the things that really matter. But our faith doesn't allow us to make that distinction. The teachings of Scripture and the teachings particularly of Paul and of Jesus himself wrap our finances and our giving up with every other matter of faith. There is no separation between the spiritual and the financial. Where our treasure is, Jesus says, there our hearts are also. We cannot separate the two. They belong together. And in fact, they can drive each other. Even so, we may get a bit uncomfortable when Paul asks for money so plainly. Because he does, here in 2 Corinthians and all throughout the letters that Paul writes that we have captured in the New Testament. He transitions smoothly and quickly from talking about matters of faith to how he would like the congregation he's writing to give, to give money. There's a bit of context to the Corinthians passage that we have this morning. We read out of 2 Corinthians. And while that makes it seem like this should be the second letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, it's simply the second one that we have recorded in Scripture. The context makes it seem like Paul wrote a few more letters to the Corinthians than that. And we can get a sense of the 
relationship a bit. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says different things in his 2 Corinthians because they're on a slightly better footing, and Paul has different things to say. But here in 2 Corinthians, they've had a rift in their relationship. They're not so sure that they like Paul anymore. And so Paul is writing to reestablish himself in the community as a leader of the community, as a spiritual parent to the people in the city and the church of Corinth. And so he's writing, trying to re-cement his relationships with this group, but he cannot seem to avoid the fact that Paul has a pet project. We see it throughout other letters in the New Testament, but Paul has this project for the poor, who he sometimes calls the saints in Jerusalem. As he is going out from Jerusalem to Gentile cities, to non-Jewish places, he is constantly fundraising. He is raising money from those churches to take back to Jerusalem, to sort of the central home base church, to support the poor, the widows, and the orphans there. And so Paul has clearly talked about this to the Corinthians before, because of course he did. He's all about this project. And we can see in some of how he deals with it in 2 Corinthians that at first, this community had a lot of excitement about this project. They were excited to give. And the last time that Paul was there, they were ready to start building a lot of money. And they asked him, in fact, how do we do this? And in 1 Corinthians, Paul gives them a suggestion. He says, every week, at the beginning of the week, set aside a little bit of money before you do anything else with your money. Take it first, set it aside, start building this pool. And It's an eminently practical idea because that's how Paul deals with things in an eminently practical way. And so we assume that the Corinthians received it well at that point, but now things are rocky between Paul and the Corinthians. And so their excitement and their enthusiasm for raising money for this, the poor in Jerusalem, has waned dramatically. Maybe it was because how they felt about Paul. Maybe it was all their conflicts made them think that this wasn't the right time to try to do something extra, to try to push on for a big project to make a big impact that maybe with all of the instability in their church would be better just to ride it out, to wait until there was just the right time to talk about giving and generosity and stewardship and fundraising. It likely didn't feel right to the Corinthians, and there's a lot of reasons that it wouldn't have made sense for Paul to ask about money in this letter either. It seems like something that would challenge his goal of trying to reestablish his relationship with them. If you're trying to reset up your relationship with someone, you probably don't ask for money in that same letter. That just doesn't make sense. It's not something we would do. If Paul had wanted to avoid trouble, well, he should have avoided the subject altogether. That's what so many of the rest of us would have done. But Paul dives right into it anyway. And not just because he's stubborn. Now, mind you, Paul is stubborn. But there's something more at play here. Paul really believes that the Corinthians' giving is a gospel issue. That there is nothing to do with the relationship between them and Paul if there's not also the core of the gospel within that context. That for him to be reestablished in the community, but for them to have lost the thread of the gospel that he brought to them in the first place, would be no better than where they were at the moment. 
And so Paul deals with this as a gospel issue, which creates all manner of problems for the folks reading this letter later, because he intermingles theological words with fundraising words. Throughout this passage, particularly in 2 Corinthians, he uses the words gift and grace interchangeably. In fact, he doesn't even hardly lean on the word gifts. He talks about the grace that has saved us from sin, the grace that God has offered to us, the redeeming, saving grace, and then looks at the community and asks them to give grace, by which he means money, to the poor in Jerusalem. Because there's no difference for Paul between the things of faith and the finances that get tied up with it. It's all one and the same. And in this passage, he lifts up this church in Macedonia. Now pay attention to what's going on here. Paul is writing to the Corinthians. And all of a sudden, in this passage, he says, you know, I've been to Macedonia, and there's a church there, and they're really good at giving. As if talking about money wasn't bad enough Paul brings up this other church and says, hey, you guys have really cooled on this project, but I have this church over here that's really gung-ho, and they're really generous. And it feels a little bit like Paul is trying to shame the Corinthians, like, oh, they're going to give more than we are? We don't think so. And what a terrible way to fundraise and do a stewardship campaign that would be. But that's not what Paul is doing here. He's lifting up the Macedonian church and says, look at them. Look at how they are dealing with the question of giving. And he describes it. He says they've been through struggles. They've had challenges. They don't have much, and yet they've given, and they've given beyond what they probably should give. Look at how generous they're being. And in fact, Paul says, look, they begged us for the opportunity to give. They begged us for the chance more money than they probably should to support good work that God is doing in Jerusalem. They didn't see it as an obligation, as an expectation, but an opportunity to be involved in the work of God. Paul said, they did. Now look at them and ask, don't you want to be like that? Not, don't you feel bad that they're doing so great, but look at how good giving is for you and for your faith. Look at the Macedonians and how much it has done for them. There's actually a lot of scientific evidence that giving improves our well-being. There are about a thousand statistical studies that can find correlation between somebody's um, giving in their life and determining happiness. The folks who give are generally more satisfied with what they have. They have a more positive outlook on They are just happier in every way that is But even beyond the correlation, there's in fact a study that shows a statistically significant impact that giving can have on our physical health. The study took 128 adults uh, ages 65 to 85, uh, some of whom had high blood pressure and others who didn't. They separated them in these two groups and they gave uh, these groups $40 a week for three weeks. Participants to... Uh, to spend that money on themselves, and the other half to spend it on others. They measured all of what they did, and they took blood pressure measurements before, during, and after. 
And they discovered that of those who had high blood pressure entering this study, that after three weeks, their blood pressure decreased a statistically significant amount. That in fact, it decreased the amount that was comparable to other interventions like medication and exercise. That by taking $40 a week and giving it to someone who wasn't them, they actually improved their blood pressure and so their general health. Giving is good for you. But it's even more than just an individual benefit saying, I want to give because it's good for my health, I'll be happier, and all of the rest. Though perhaps Paul is saying a bit of that. But there's even more going on in how Paul ties individual giving into all of the rest of faith. He asks the Corinthians to excel in giving like they do in everything else. He sees it as an expression of faith, as something to excel in. Because it is so tied in to faith, this act of giving. So much so that we might wonder if we can live out our faith without giving. Jesus says, where your hearts are, there your treasure is, and vice versa. Where your treasure is, there your hearts shall be also. Whether or not giving does anything good for us, though I believe that it does, if we do not live generously, then our hearts are not where God's hearts are. God's heart is. And if our heart isn't where God's heart is, then what can God do with us? Sometimes in sort of stewardship moments, the person asked for money will talk about all the good that can be done with the giving we can give. And we'll probably touch on that next week or the week after because there's so much to go there, so much to say, look at the impact we could have. But I think it's important to remember that the church, the universal church, is not so feeble an institution. God is not so dependent on us that if we don't give, the church suddenly can't do the things that the church does. God has given us the end of the story in Scripture already. There will come a day when all people worship God in all manner of voices and language. There will come a day when there is justice and equality for all people. When everyone knows the love of God, when the grace of God is abundant throughout the land, and all is, should be. And God tells us we're going to get there. And whether or not we give today or in our lifespan probably isn't going to impact whether or not God can do what God has said God will do. The question is not so much will our giving stop the work or our lack of giving stop the work of the church from being done, but will a lack of giving prevent us from being used in the work God has called us to? And if by giving do we put our hearts in the right place, that we can be the hands and feet of Christ in every way that we would like to be. God's work will be done. We like to be a part of it. God is going to feed the hungry. How great would it be to carry the food? God is going to heal the sick. And so how much would we like to be the ones carrying the prayers for the sick? God's love will be known throughout the world. 
Wouldn't we like to be the ones talking about it and sharing it? God's grace will be shared and sins will be forgiven and all people will know the love of God. And wouldn't we like to be a part of the work he is doing in that way? Paul says, look at the Macedonians. They begged for the opportunity to be involved in the work that God is doing. The call to generosity, the call to give, the call to put our money where our heart is, is intended to draw us into the work of God. To say, look at what God is doing. I'd like to be a part of that. It can be hard to talk about money. But when we don't talk about it, then it just happens on its own, and so often in ways that we do not mean or intend. But if we really look at it, we really see it as a matter of faith, and we work at it as we do every other part, we do practice at prayer, and we do intentionally read Scripture, and the way that we look at how we can help those around us, we treat giving in the same way that we do every other spiritual practice, it becomes an opportunity, an opportunity to be a part of the good work that God is doing. God's going to do it, one way or the other. I think we'd like to be a part of it. As we have been, so we will continue to do. Our generosity draws us in the powerful, redeeming, grace-filled, loving work Thanks be to God. Friends, I invite us to stand now as we sing together our next hymn, which is The Gift of Love. It's number 408 in the hymnal, or you'll find all the words on the screen. Let us sing together.